Welcome to Square One, powered by FinTech TV. E-commerce and online brands have absolutely exploded post-COVID-19. And with it, a number of interesting platforms have been developed to help e-commerce businesses and brands take advantage of scale. Today, I chatted with Helen Bade, CEO of Foundry, a brand platform that acquires and grows enduring digital brands. Foundry recently launched with $100 million in equity capital from Life Bay Capital and Monogram Capital Partners to acquire, integrate, and scale enduring online businesses. Helen has a really interesting background and a perspective she brings to the table to lead the company. She was formerly the Chief Global Customer Officer at Pizza Hut and has built a career scaling omnichannel for CPG companies. She's also the only woman CEO among 60 aggregators that have raised almost $6 billion in capital since April 2020. Helen, welcome and, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Frank. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, Helen, thrilled to have you on the show today. We're going to dive into you know what, what is one of the hottest business models, I think, as of late, which is buying e-commerce businesses. Now, you have a unique angle on it at Foundry. We're going to spend a bunch of time you know, deep diving into the model. But before we jump into Foundry, okay. let's just talk a little bit more about your background. Oh, about me. My God. Okay. All right. So I've been in the, I guess, the physical digital space, if you want to call it that, for a long time. Uh, my background is I've done startups. I've done large corporates. I was at HP for nine years. I spent a bunch of time at Walmart and then at Pizza Hut, where I was responsible for all tech and operations. And now this, um, I think for me, the, the exciting part is about being able to make connections that uh, grow the business in a nonlinear way. That's always been the thing that gets me going. Yeah. And you've got a you've got a pretty deep omni-channel background. We'll, we'll dive into that a, a little bit as well. Um, but that becomes pretty core to Foundry, right? And so I want you to explain to us, what is Foundry? You know, what's the state of the company today? What's the mission, et cetera? Yeah. So Foundry really is in the business of unlocking potential for small businesses that have great potential to become large, right? That's the way we think about all the business we go after. We know that uh, brands can grow anywhere. Great ideas come from great people. They are not the right of large corporates. And our job is to go find these incredible businesses that have the potential to grow, but they are stuck because of either they don't have the right amount of capital, right kind of capabilities, or the commitment from the group that is there to keep growing it. And we want to come in and effectively give them the platform for growth. So we are really a growth platform for brands that have potential. Yeah. And, and this market, I want to take a step back and just talk about the market, um, yeah. because I think if you're not in the day-to-day -day of the market, it's actually, it's 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 deceptively large, right? So there's a huge long tail of yep. these types of e-commerce stores or brands online, um, yep. and they're transforming, right? They're moving from brick and mortar to retail. That's obviously been significantly accelerated because of COVID. Maybe yep. give us two perspectives on the market. I think one is, you know, more of a concept of just how many of these types of brands or e-commerce stores are even out there today, uh, yep. and then probably more interestingly going forward, you know, how fast is the space, you know, growing and evolving. Yeah, I mean, look, there's multiple ways for getting some data that gives you like signals of growth as well as size. If you look at marketplaces itself, the brands, if you look at Amazon alone, they're like, I think almost 5 million different marketplace sellers that just sell on Amazon alone. So you think about that for a second and think about the scale of that. I always like to proxy with e-commerce sites. Like Shopify alone has almost coming up to, I think, 1.8 billion or 1.7 billion stores that they support. So now you think about that, add those things up. Now you look at App Store, right? If you look at the Google App Store, there's almost two and a half billion apps on Google Google Play Store. And the iOS store has almost, almost 1.7, 1.8. Like you keep adding these things up and you suddenly think, this is a huge 
huge, tremendous market of different type of brands and businesses that are trying to reach out to customers. Now, obviously, all are not e-commerce. There's gaming and there's a whole bunch of stuff. But there are brands and businesses out there that are trying to interact and engage customers in a meaningful way. And so the question becomes, where are the growth patterns of putting these things together where you can have a portfolio that's really meaningful uh, for where customers can go and shop products that they care about and go find it. But think about the cognitive load for a customer when they're trying to buy, right? Because now I have to make a choice, not from the three zero boxes in front of me in a retail store, I'm looking at, you know, 300,000 items. So I think it's, there's almost a need to figure out how to shop and help them shop better. Yeah, I think that's actually, it's funny because when you look at the B2B side, that's exactly the same challenge of, you know, SaaS was a novelty, you know, five years ago, seven years ago, whatever it might be. And now companies are just overloaded, you know, by the amount of subscription products that there actually are. And so you're starting to see kind of from a top-down perspective on the B2B side, right, um, is the similar effect of how do we operationalize process so that our individual employees don't have excess cognitive load, right? How many chat apps are there? How many, you know, so on and so forth, right? Products are there. Absolutely. And so I think we see that same parallel on the, on the customer side. I like the way you framed kind of all these different buckets of where, you know, these companies or these apps, you know, kind of come from, because I think one of the things that I think about a lot is whenever you're operating in fast growth markets, I think the most interesting thing is that a lot of that infrastructure is actually pretty immature. Right. Oh, very yet to be built out, right? And so yeah. maybe we can talk about that a little bit. I, I think about it, you know, and I'm curious how Helen of you uh, if this resonates with you. I think about it uh, at two levels, right? Okay. But I think about it at an individual level, okay, a micro level, right? So that's why you have the rise of platforms like Shopify, just your basic how do you even run the shop? Yeah. Um, but I think for then the brands that do really well on a Shopify and Amazon, et cetera it starts to come at the macro level, right? So a lot of these stores or a lot of these shops actually perform worse at scale, which is very counterintuitive, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe we can talk a little bit yeah. more, you know, about how you think about the infrastructure. There's a lot to unpack there, but maybe we can start, you know, first just with how you think about kind of that surrounding infrastructure of the space. Yeah, you know, I always start um, with a customer lens because yeah. that helps you separate from what you're trying to do, what, what is meaningful to be done. And the way I always think about customer is through the flow of journey they go through, which is typically pre-purchase, a purchase and a post-purchase um, cycle, right? Now, if you think of infrastructure to do all three of those things, whether you're an individual or the other bucket of macro that you were talking about, there's a bunch of infrastructure that needs to be built for success so all three to happen, right? And typically a lot more time is spent at the top of the funnel where you'll see a ton of agencies and capabilities and infrastructure around pre-purchases like demand generation, the Facebook of the world to go Google ads and how do I drive traffic to my customers, you know, affiliate networks, all of that infrastructure to drive demand. And there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of optionality there. The real element where I think the, the, the uh, success factors lie is actually the bottom of the funnel. Yeah. Because most of the time when customers don't become loyal or advocates of a brand is because it's a post-purchase experience that's poor. And most of the things that fail at scale, like you mentioned, they don't scale is because they spend so much of their energy at the top of the funnel because the business is focused on, I need to grow my company. I need to get sales in. And so they focus on the top of the funnel, but they don't think about the actual experience of receiving a product, the actual experience of returning a product, right? And that's where you actually lose customers. And then you become a one and done business, which can never succeed because you have to keep buying your customers over and over again. 
And that becomes a, the unit economics of the business fails, right? That's why they fail at scale to scale, yeah. because actually that's what needs to be done to grow a business well uh, is the end to end. And frankly, more focus on the, the bottom of the funnel, if that makes sense in terms of infrastructure. Today, infrastructure is very focused on the top of the funnel. Yeah, no, that's 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 exactly what that's exactly what my observation has been is that you have kind of this overload of how do you get the customer in the door. That's right. Um, but where brands and typically small businesses really struggle that's is right. that not only the post-purchase part, but the actual purchase part purchase. itself, right? The exactly. checkout process, et cetera, exactly. as well, right? Exactly. Um, and it's because it's really complicated and it's really capital intensive, right? That's and right. so it's it's easier, I think, to talk about your product, your brand story, get somebody mm -hmm. in the door. But right. actually delivering and fulfilling on that full promise is a really complicated operational problem, right? Oh, absolutely. But that's true, not just for small businesses, even for large companies. For large, sure. Right? I used to always talk at Walmart with my team about, you know, imagine your digital store is like a physical store. What would you do if you had a long line at checkout? You would yep. probably open another, you know, counter and say, let me move some of you customers over there. Yep. What do you do when that happens in a digital store? Do you even think about that? That you know what somebody there's a winning the spinning wheel of death, like I call it, sitting on a page. The customers are going to bail and they're going to go to the next store because yeah. the cost of leaving a store on digitally is far lower than it is on a physical store because it's not like you drove to a store and you have to stand there to buy the stuff that you are now forced to buy. So we have to engage really well in the actual flow of purchase to your point purchase as well as post purchase when the customer leaves the building, so to say. I like that analogy a lot because it's intuitive when you're inside a retail store to say, okay, I mean, we do it all the time, right? If you go to the right. grocery store, you say, I'm going to, you know, go to X, I'm going to go to the next line. Or if you're driving, you're going to try and weave lanes and go where there's less traffic. So right. it's, it's a lot more difficult mentally to think about that in a digital space because space in some sense is infinite, but experience is not infinite. That's exactly right. Um, so I, I like I like the way you frame that. So when we if we kind of pair it back now and we and we take it in the context of Foundry, right? Yeah. Uh, walk us through, uh, you know, walk us through actually before even getting into kind of the business model or the construct of Foundry itself. Yeah. Let's maybe just walk through the business model of buying an individual brand, right? That's in the target range of Foundry. I mean, let's let's orient the audience around what's the quantitative, what's the qualitative, you know, what are, what, what kinds of businesses, what kinds of products, uh, you know, apps, et cetera, are you guys looking for? Right. Um, and then we can, you know, we can go a little bit deeper. Yeah, absolutely. So there, you know, when we approach the business overall, we said, um, as a business, we are in the business of buying brands. Now that's, that in itself is actually quite a big conversation to have because how do you define a brand? Um, there are a lot of products today that are sold on Amazon that are single SKU businesses. And so are they a brand or not, right? It's a conversation to have. So when you think about the filter, one, a lot of the filters we sit down and talk about is this, if this is a product, a single SKU business, is could this become a brand? And that's an important part of the filter for founder to look at a business because for us, it's about finding vectors of growth. And it's not just about buying and rolling up a business and saying, this is a, you know, enough products have been bought together. So we'll make enough money because we want to actually grow and build brands. So and, if that, is, and just on that, just on that point, is is your perspective yeah. then when you're evaluating these, you know, let's say it's a single SKU business, you know, into can it be a brand? I'm curious, yeah. like, what does that decision process look like, right? What, how do you determine, right? Or what 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 are those vectors of growth that you're looking for? Which is, is it that they come onto your platform and then because of all the ancillary things Foundry has, they can become a brand, mm -hmm. or you see certain kind of elements and inclinations. 
And, you know, it's, you can see that in your portfolio of other related products, they can become a brand. Like, how do you make that? What's the decision right. process to go? That's a great there? question. That's a great question. So let's think of, let's say, a product in pets category, right? Okay. Let's just make it a bit more quantifiable. And let's say somebody is selling dog treats and yeah. it's a great product. It's a great brand, great packaging. And that's all they've ever done because that's all they've ever looked at. But we will look at the brand and say, could you now launch other adjacent products with the same branding? Because there's something unique about the way they're going to market, why the customers are coming to buy this product. Is there something about this product that is actually creating a pull in this business as opposed to, is it just a single skew thing? It cannot actually get extended. If it can get extended to other pet food products or it can go into pet like you know, beds, cat beds, or whatever else it can go into, then we say, okay, there's extensibility to this. We can, there's something about the sourcing and the supply chain that can give me more, uh, more to grow. And then as well as there's a lot of inbound customers looking for this brand, right? Because you can look at things, very quantitative things like search for this particular brand itself on platforms, et cetera, and say, are people just searching dog treats or treat pet treats and then finding this? Or the people are looking for the brand itself, brand X, and saying, I will actually only buy this. Because those are two different signals of intent for what the attraction for the business is. And then we say, okay, there is extensibility to this, right? So there is a whole bunch of a series of uh, data points we look at that are going to give us signals of it does this have a potential to become brand over time. And adjacencies are very important, right? When you have single skew businesses that yeah. can do adjacencies. And if they can, we say, yes, it meets our requirement that can become a brand. It might already be one, even though it's a single skew business because there is a pull for this product. And yeah. if it is, then we look at the second filter is, where is it available? So are customers finding it on a marketplace like Amazon or are they finding it through direct to consumer business because they have their own website or are they available in international or where, where are they available? And yeah. that gives us two things. One, it tells us where we wanna be concentrated as a business in terms of platforms. And two, it tells us how much growth is available to us for this business if we take it on, right? If it's available everywhere, it's maximizing, it's doing everything. Frankly, I don't want to buy a business and deduct value, right? Because that's not the business we are in. We're in the business of buying a business and adding value. And we look at this and say, okay, what are the white spaces we can see for this business? And we quantify that as attractiveness of buying a business and saying, we believe that we can add value to this company and we can be accretive to what the founder who has done an incredible job has already done, right? And that gives us a second filter. So we start with the brand versus product, start with the white spaces for channel, and then you go into all of the other efficiency plays. Can we find customers you know, cheaper for them? Can we find a better channel for them? These are the channels they've never tried, all right? They have they done social, have they done look at all these other elements that we can optimize for them? And that gives us that individual businesses uh, signals. And then, of course, we look at our portfolio. How does it fit into our portfolio, et cetera? So I could go on. You, you get the idea, right, in terms of how we think about it. Absolutely. And, and we mentioned before, you mentioned before, kind of just the long tail of how many of these, you know, application stores, brands, et cetera, are out there. I mean, are you guys picking up, like, two guys in a garage? You're picking up $20 million businesses? Like, what, what is the range of, of business, you know, yeah. ideally for founders? Yeah. Actually, it's all of the above. It's very interesting. You know, you can actually have two guys in a garage who can build a $20 million business. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, it's quite incredible, which is why the power of the founders is so important. I actually think there are people who, out of sheer will and sheer passion, can actually create a really meaningful business. And if they actually got us, imagine what they could do. 
So for us, those are the winning combinations where a small team can actually build a really meaningful business and we can add value to it. But sometimes we get a full team and that actually gives us capabilities to leverage for other brands, right? That's the other beauty of acquiring businesses that you can buy capabilities. It's not just the business. You also get access to talent who has successfully done something in the space and we can then now leverage them and be, be part of a bigger business because a lot of the times, almost in my mind, hopefully all of the time, the businesses we buy want to stay with us and the people want to stay with us in the long term. And that's why we want them to be part of the foundry family as opposed to take a check and, you know, leave for Tahiti. Yeah, yeah. Also, I, one of the things that I find interesting, I'm curious to get your perspective on this, is I think I think lower middle market businesses are often like the wild, wild west of M&A and transactions, right? right. When right. you're in public companies, you're in larger scale, there's comps, there's preceding transactions. Um, businesses that are subscale, especially ones that are cash flow intensive, which many of these brands are, yeah. um, you know, it's often difficult to place an actual value on them. I mean, a lot of these businesses also have really strong intangibles, right? Brand value, customer loyalty, et cetera. I want to unpack a little bit more, Helen, just the way, you know, kind of not quantitatively, but maybe academically, how Foundry improves the individual equity value of a business that purchases. So for me, when I, when I kind of look outside in, and I'm sure I'm missing a ton of factors, I, I see three leverage factors, right? One is I see there's a multiple you just get with scale, right? So when you, when you become a part of Foundry or you yeah. know, kind of an aggregator or so, you are getting the benefit of all the other businesses that they have bought as well. That's, that's yeah. one. I think the second is I'm sure there's some sort of operating leverage, right? Yep. Because of common core. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third is there's probably more acceleration on top line growth, right? Because yeah. you guys can boost it with resources, best practices, et cetera. Are yeah. those the three vectors? Are there different vectors? Like how, how, what's the right way to think about if I've got a brand and I were acquired by Foundry, like, am I looking at, you know, the ability to potentially 5X, 10X, 100X that I might not be able to do on my own? Like what's that, what's that pitch, I guess, to the founder, right? Uh, uh, yeah, especially yeah. if a brand that's really starting to work, right? Yeah, Why yeah. do they want to come be a part of the platform versus continue yeah. on themselves? Yeah, I mean, by the way, your buckets are absolutely spot on. They are, they are exactly what we would look at to do. And that's the exercise we do when we evaluate it, right? Back to my earlier point, I don't want to buy a business not to add value to them, yeah. right? I have to be able to add value. And the value add happens in my mind almost in a two stages, with all those three vectors that you talked about. The first thing is when we acquire a business within the first three months, we have an integration team. And if you think, I like thinking about it in simple two by two boxes because it helped me think through things. If you think about effort and impact of actions, you, that team comes in for the first three months and looks at all the low effort, high impact uh, ideas and say, how can we very quickly bring something onto our platform and, and set them up for growth even faster than we found them? Right? So that's the first activity they do. They go and look at all the white spaces and find the quick wins and implement them. And they typically are in the things like, oh, are they you know, doing the efficiency? Is the spend right? Is, are they actually optimizing the content on the pages? Are the images right? Are people discovering them? Do they have some sort of fundamentals of operating on Amazon and fundamentals of operating a D2C site? Because those typically are the ones that come in. And then you look at the longer term plan when we literally do a proper annual plan for these businesses that you would do in any established company. A lot of these entrepreneurs probably go and just run the business on a day-to-day basis and their hair is on fire, right? Because they don't get the time to step back and say, so what do I think I will grow my business in the next 12 months and what are my levers? They kind of have to be in it every single day. 
we give them the ability to take that breath, right? So, okay, yeah. my skill set is that I'm an NPD person. I come up with new product ideas. I don't want to deal with operations. I don't want to deal with ROAS optimization on Google ads. I do not want to think about the affiliate network that pay their commission, uh, get commissions. All of this other administrative overhead, frankly, that takes up time that if they didn't do, they could do all of the other NPD stuff that they're really great at because they came up with the idea in the first place or whatever the skill set is. I'm using NPD as an example. Sure. Give them the time to do what they're great at. And yep. then we take over the elements that they today either outsourcing or doing badly simply because they don't have enough hours in the day, right? So for us, those are the buckets. What can we scale to your point? What can we improve the efficiencies for? And then what can we find as new ideas that this person just couldn't get to? International is a great example, yep. right? Seeing the product on an international platform going further as we get more brands and we go international, that would be, that's a massive effort for a small business to go do. And once we get that project program running really well, they can just join that and they just get growth in that sector altogether, right? So those are the kind of things we can do for founders yeah. just because, not because they don't have the, you know, their brand is not worth it. It's because they just haven't got to it. Yeah. How do you, as, as the CEO of Foundry, think about portfolio management? So there's kind of an intuitive approach here and we've been talking about it, right? Which is you get all the brands together, they operate as these individual companies, but they can tap into, you know, shared services, shared capabilities on the back end, right? Which creates just better operating leverage for yeah. each individual company. Yeah. Uh, but there's also a risk here, right? Which is fitting kind of round holes into pegs, like yeah. overgeneralizing a platform to plug companies into. And, and the more I'm listening to you, Helen, the more actually in my mind, I'm wondering, is it to not fall into that trap, right? Is that more concerted effort on the front end in terms of which companies you're uh, acquiring and bringing in? Or is it more concerted effort on the back end of saying, you know, how do we, in, how do we maintain this individuality, you know, while giving the strength of scale and leverage? I'm, I'm curious how you've thought about that balance. Yeah. That's a great point, frankly. And I, I would hate to give the answer, which is to say it's both, unfortunately, <laughs> uh -huh. but it is both. Uh, we are right now, we have a focus on certain categories because we want to buy products that are complementary to each other and brands that are complementary to each other. So we are looking at pets, for example, as a category. We're looking at home, which is a massive space yeah. as a category. We're looking at outdoor, which is again, another massive category. So we are starting with, uh, these are our categories of focus. And that helps us look at adjacent products that build complementarity of a portfolio, right? It's not to say we will never look at a business that is in another category, but that would have to have another vector of growth that we believe is important. For example, for me, it is frequency. Brands that are frequency-driven brands are frankly much, much more longitudinally available than brands that are one and done, typically, right? When you buy something that is a hardware product, you're not gonna go buy it again unless it breaks. Whereas if you're buying cat litter, you're probably going to need it every time you run out of it, right? So there is a there is a need for frequency-based products. So we look at going off-piste every time there is a business that has good frequency-based signals. And we'll say, okay, we I think it will be a good adjacency for us to build in and bring in. So we do a little bit of that thinking up front to say that it go through our decision tree of should we buy this business or not, right? So that's an important filter. And then second, it is, can we find efficiencies to your point at the back end? Because if everything is being sourced differently and there is no benefit, you effectively now created a really complex business with 10 different sourcing that now you have to manage. 
this is where the platform becomes important, right? Which is how do you look at efficiency of items all coming from China, being sourced from China, but China is a very big country. It's not easy to say everything is coming from China. So it's the same. You have to look at how we're optimizing our shipping lanes. How are we thinking about the actual vendors we are using to get elements done for us in terms of clearance, et cetera. So there's a whole bunch of systems to put in place that if our, our thesis is that if you move it from an individual running it to a system running it, you will do it better. Again, that has to be proven out with time, but that is the, the thesis behind the idea of optimizing shared services that these brands can leverage as opposed to going and paying above the odds because they don't have the volume to go for it. And I'm interested in, in actually talking about kind of the frameworks or guiding principles on how you make those major decisions. So this is this is a cool model, right? Because it's got both components of building and buying. Yeah. You're buying businesses from day one, but you're building the foundational platform and the linkage between these businesses yeah. to tie you know, them together. So you're, you're effectively running a conglomerate, right? And so yeah. when you're running a conglomerate so that you don't have an overly complex operational business, you have to have frameworks and guiding principles for these major decisions on the back end, right? So, you know, do you vertically integrate some core components? What does your yeah. partner ecosystem look like? You know, yeah. whom do you engage for financing, logistics, you know, so on and so forth. I'm, I'm curious, what are some of those frameworks or guiding principles of how you think about elements that you guys believe, it might not be, you know, a specific brand's capability, but you yeah. believe that you can vertically integrate or build in-house yeah. versus, you know, you need to create an ecosystem of partners. Maybe walk yeah. us through that. Yeah, that's, a, again, it's a, actually a really important decision because you can get caught up in building a lot of stuff that you don't need to build because it was not valuable. Yeah. So the first step question we ask us, one thing is non-negotiable in my mind is that we have to own data for the brands and businesses we acquire because we have to understand how these businesses are run. Yeah. which fundamentally can be difficult when you're operating on Amazon, right? Because you can only get so much data of, of the businesses you run. So that's why direct-to-consumer business is really important part of the, of the model because it helps us understand how business, how, how our brands are performing. And that is really important to understand. So data is in a way non-negotiable. To me, that is the foundational element of information we have to own and be able to put it in a way that we can leverage it to make decisions, whether it's for how much money to spend for marketing or how much money the customer will generate, what is the lifetime value or any of the calculations you need to do. So that's foundational, we have to own it. We have to build the systems and capabilities to put it somewhere that's easily accessible. The problem with data projects are not that they're data projects that take forever, is that they don't become accessible to the yeah. systems that need it. So building it in a way that any system you put on top of it that you buy or build, can access your data to make it valuable. So that's the first thing and make it as open as possible. Then the second question is, is this particular component that I'm trying to build or buy a core competence that will make a difference to my business going forward? Or is it something that is a commodity and I can do anywhere? And that decision filter actually determines what we buy versus build, right? Because to me, it is like you can buy everything or you can build everything. Uh, but then you also have a series of integrations to do, right? Is the system so critical that if I don't own it, the latency that it will give to me is so high that it will destroy everything else I need to do? So there's a bunch of decision criteria we have as we look at a component. So we've drawn this blueprint of all the capabilities we need to run this business. And there's a lot of them, right? That's a part because you're running a full business to your point. It's a conglomerate end-to-end, -end, even though it's small companies. You look at each one of these foundational and layers of companies tiers. And for each one of them, we have gone through and said, is it a buyer build? Or yeah. is it a buyer build today? Yeah. Some decisions might just be, let's go buy and partner today, 
because it's not the right thing to do today. But over time, a trigger will element will bring us in. So that's the other thing. We have to pace in sequencing our investments to what we can afford, yeah. which is when a lot of these aggregators and startups get into trouble is when you spend more money than you have or you can afford. So we've looked at the whole map. So it's like I always say to people, I've drawn the blueprint of my house, but I don't need to build the extension right now or put the swimming pool in, right? Because I can't afford it. But I do need the load-bearing walls. I do yeah. need the kitchen because I need to cook. So what are those elements that I do need to build today that are critical to me? But over time, I can then go decide, you know, what I need to go bring in house. So that's how we have taken the approach of the Bible yeah. decisions. Yeah. Well, and there's a longitudinal element to that as well, right? In terms right. of this chronology of, or sequencing of decisioning, because right. um, it's also a function of how your brands are performing themselves. So one of the things I was curious about is when you look at this type of model or so, and you buy a business, is the idea that it's, you know, it's held onto, it's kind of kept in the portfolio for an evergreen period of time, or is the idea that, you know, you'll actually spin out individual brands off of the platform after acquisition? Like, how do you think about the portfolio management part of the equation that's not the building and supporting the portfolio, but literally the management of the portfolio itself? Well, currently our approach is that we are no different than any other large CPG business, right? That's how I think about it, right? The Unilever's PNGs of the world. You have brands in your portfolio and you run them and you grow them over time. Yeah. Now, brands do become, you'll have to refresh them, right? But the current thesis is not that necessarily we're going to spin out a brand and sell it. The yeah. idea is that we'll own it and build brands that are durable over time. And these are brands that customers care about and live with. Now, as time progresses, we'll new data appear and we'll have to make different decisions. Who sure. knows? Yeah. But our current thesis really is that we want to build a house of brands as a, which are small brands, but with high potential, right? Yeah. And that's that just really the way we think about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm chuckling because actually the image I have in my mind, I'd come across this relatively recently. I didn't, I didn't even you know, recognize uh, this or wasn't as aware of this as like, if you look at all or the vast majority of individual consumer brands that we all buy, sodas, chips, you know, cereals, so on and so forth, it really all ties back to like six companies, yeah. right? And so you've got hundreds and hundreds of brands out there. And we as consumers have kind of been mentally tricked to, we have all these choices, there are all these different companies, et cetera, but they all roll right back into right. basically five companies, that's right? right? That's right, that's right. And that's why my view is there is no reason why that small brand that that per two person garage you know, idea came from yeah. doesn't have the same potential as a large brand that was, you know, done in a lab in the offices of a large CPG company, right? right? Because it is really about how you nurture and grow that business as opposed to, you know, the idea was a bad one. So it is, that's why we call it that our, we are in the business of unlocking potential. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So this space, and I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I, I kind of call it the aggregator space is the easiest way to at least denominate it, is, is really heating up, right? So Thrasio is probably the most well-recognized name. Um, I think there's, you know, I'm sure there's more, but there's, I've seen at least about, you know, 60 aggregators out there. Yeah. There's yeah. over $6 billion that's been deployed, right, towards this business model of companies really trying to tackle this. How do you think through that and process that? I mean, the natural implication for me is, you know, when more people adopt a model, more capital flows in chasing after the same deals, prices of those deals go up, start squeezing returns, eventually leads to capital outflows. So my question in, in sorts is, you know, are we kind of seeing this type of wave that's happening? And this is, you know, kind of the business model of the time. 
Um, I don't believe that, by the way. I think this is an enduring business model, but I think there is a cyclical effect going on right now at this moment in time in this business model. Um, so maybe a lot to unpack there, but maybe maybe we could just start with what's the lay of the land? You know, where is Foundry's unique focus? How do you think about as the CEO of Foundry differentiating from the pack? Maybe let's start. You know, let's start there. Yeah. So look, we believe that we have. Um, when I think of the three strategic modes for us, I think of uh, three different key elements for us as a business. The first is the fact that we will focus on brands and that we can grow them in a way as operators. So like, you know, our team is full of operators who have done this before in different channels. And we brought them in together intentionally because our goal is that we bring them together because we can get these brands and grow them, right? That is an absolute going to be a mode for us going forward. Second is data, like I said to you. I think we have to be able to find signals of growth that are not apparent to someone who is just a two-person company who just doesn't have the analytical uh, systems available to them to be able to identify those patterns. So by building a unique data model, we will be able to identify patterns of growth that are just not available on the surface. So that's the second mode. Yeah. And the third one for me, and probably the most important, are the founders themselves. One of the things that we truly believe in, that the companies we buy, we want the founders to stay with us. We almost want to build a founder in residence program, like I call it, and they, they will become our think tank for the next idea and the next idea because they are successful because of who they are. And we will be successful for who they are. So they need to join this family in whatever way, shape they want, but they will grow the business pattern for us going forward. For me, those three areas is what makes Foundry unique, right? Yeah. And, and, and I'm not saying others don't do that, but what I'm saying is these are the areas of focus with which we want to go to market because it is a big and a busy market right now. And I think we have to figure out how we, what is our formula for success as opposed to what anybody else is doing. Yeah. And it hasn't been, so like Thrasio focuses, right, for example, exclusively on Amazon FBAs, you know, open store is focusing on shop, rolling up Shopify stores. Mm-hmm. Um, is is the idea here that you guys are, you know, is there geographic focus? Is there, you know, the, I know you've talked a lot about omni-channel, so I'm assuming that, you know, the focus of bringing these brands into Foundry is not just a function of are they on Amazon, Shopify, et cetera. Where, where's the actual target focus? You know, when you, when you kind of pair the universe down of those, you know, kind of billions of stores, et cetera, we were talking about in the front part of the conversation, how do you, how do you pair down the universe to at least even, you know, start processing this is the addressable store population or addressable brand population, you know, for us to go after? Yeah, we, we start with the two filters of, of brand and categories as okay. opposed to a channel. Right. Okay. Because to me, channel is just where the customer is finding these products. Yeah. Right. So if we look at and therefore it doesn't matter if it's FBA or direct to consumer, for us, what is important is it does got it does it got signals of brand and does it have white spaces to grow? And that's yeah. been our filter as opposed to going with a, a channel focus, which is a lot of the aggregators focus today. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I want to round out the conversation, Helen, with this quote you have, um, which I, I love it. And I want to, I want to unpack and I'm truly understand the meaning. I think I have an in, intuitive sense of what it means, but I'm sure I'm missing something. Your, your quote is, Amazon is not the point of arrival for Foundry. It's the point of departure. Uh, unpack what that means for us and maybe, you know, uh, we can use that as a summation of, of the discussion we've had. Yeah, sure. Um... See, for me, um, Amazon is such a huge marketplace that you have to participate if you want to grow your business. So to me, participating on Amazon is not the end success factor for brands that we own. 
for me, that's a very critical channel we need to participate in and be showing up the right way and do all the things we need to do to optimize our business on Amazon. But for me, the actual point of arrival for a brand is when they're available, wherever their demand is, wherever the customers are. I always start with, where are the customers who will want to consume this product? And can they, in front of the eyeballs for those customers, can I put that item in there? That might mean a direct-to-consumer. That might mean an app. That might mean shop you know, putting it on Lazada in Asia, that might mean putting it on a, in a marketplace in the UK. It might mean so many different things. So for me, just because we are successful on Amazon doesn't mean we have arrived. Just because we're successful on Amazon is the table stakes for us to get right, because that is a huge source of revenue and baseline for us. But as we get into other places is when we actually will truly unleash what the capability of this brand is. And for us to do that, we have to continue as a business have operators who can do and enable that. And that's how I think about it. That's what I meant by it is a point of departure for us. It is non-negotiable we do it right. No one's saying we don't do Amazon right. But that's not what's going to give us a check in the box and saying it's done. The work starts when we finish our work on Amazon, uh, so to say. It doesn't end there. Yeah, I, I love that because I think it, it, it kind of summarizes our conversation nicely, which is the white space. I think there's a significant white space now where you actually can bring in lots of resources, lots of capital, lots of sophisticated operators to really take these businesses or these brands that have started, you know, in many cases, actually with no intent to become as large as they have, but they've been, as you said earlier in the discussion, been pulled in, you know, by their customers and they're kind of on this, on this journey and path. Helen, this was, this was awesome. I, I yeah. so appreciate you, you know, taking the time. It's such an interesting space generally right now. I think people have observed it, heard about it, et cetera, but getting, you know, more perspective from someone that's really an operator and running this um, is super interesting. So you're, you're welcome back anytime. You know, thanks so Thank much you. for joining us. Really enjoyed having you on. Thank you.